Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We come to the end of another consequential week here in Georgia and across the country, of course. I was just thinking before we came on the air that we're now ending our fourth week, one month, of doing Political Rewind by remote. Me from my uh, home studio in the Decatur area, and of course all of our panelists have been coming to us by telephone Um, But we're no different than many of you out there, most of you working from home or sheltering in place at home. And um, I know this continues to be a very, very difficult time. Uh, The difficult time is reflected by the latest figures we're seeing from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Uh, As of 7 o'clock last night, they report 10,885 confirmed cases of COVID-19. That's up 681 in 24 hours. Uh, We continue to see the uh, preponderance of the cases in the metro Atlanta area, but of course, we're seeing it in um, southwest Georgia in particularly big numbers. Many of you were with us yesterday when we talked to the uh, leaders of Phoebe Putney uh, Health Systems down there who told us about how much difficulties they're dealing with. Um, We also now are reporting 412 deaths. That's up 42 in just 24 hours. And and, and beyond that, we are seeing 2,298 people currently hospitalized. What's interesting about that figure is that that means about 21% of the cases reported are in hospitals. So it tells us that a majority of people who do get COVID-19 have not required hospitalization. Of course, Um, These numbers lag. Uh, They're at least a day or two old, and they don't necessarily capture everyone out there who's dealing with uh, coronavirus clearly. All right, um, let's move beyond that. Uh, At the very beginning of the show, you probably heard me talk about the unemployment figures in Georgia, which are staggering. And one of the things that was particularly noteworthy is that the hardest hit industries here right now are restaurants and hospitality. And so we're going to talk about that on Political Rewind today, and we've got a great panel to do just that. Uh, We're joined by Lagaya Figueres, um, who has um, uh, joined the AJC. Lagaya, how long have you been at the AJC now? Yeah, I joined in the fall of 2015. Oh, it's been that long. Wow. I know, right? Um, Well, you become a... Yeah. (laughs) I'm a native now. Yeah, and you become... (laughs) Yeah, you are. And you become a ubiquitous present as a food writer, as a um, restaurant critic. And we're really happy to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Karen Bremer. Karen Bremer is also with us. Karen is the CEO of the Georgia uh, Restaurant Association, which represents uh, the industry across the state. How are you doing today, Karen? Doing fine, Bill. Glad to be here with everybody to be able to talk about how our industry is being devastated right now. Yeah, and we're going to get into all of that. We're also joined by Jarrett Steber. Jarrett is a chef, uh, one of the most uh, highly acclaimed chefs in the Southeast, and he is the proprietor uh, at 
Little Bear, his restaurant down in the um, Summerhill neighborhood of Atlanta. Jarrett, welcome to the show. I'm going to start with you, Jarrett, because I want to start by saying I've known you since you were in middle school when you and my son were at school together, and I followed you all the way through middle school, high school, to the beginnings of your career as a chef. And uh, to, always took great delight in the recognition you got, and you became known as the pop-up king uh, of yeah. Atlanta because you were you were cooking in other people's kitchens for a long time and won great recognition for the work you were doing. I also know that for a number of years you were out looking to raise the money you needed to finally open your own place. You've done that. And in late February, you opened Little Bear, and then the virus hit. Talk to us a little bit about what this journey has been like. Let's start at the very macro level, what it's like for one restaurateur right now. Yeah, well, I mean, if anything, it it almost feels more fitting that this would happen, because after our you know, seven years of running a pop-up restaurant before this, it, it would have felt kind of weird in a way if we had just opened the restaurant we wanted to finally and just kind of had it go smoothly. <laughs> so, you know, obviously a pandemic wasn't what we were expecting to happen, but the first two weeks of being open were really smooth. We were busy. The restaurant was running well. You know, a lot of my staff has worked with me for a long time in the pop-up, so we kind of you know, hit the ground running and then like, oh, yeah, of course, a pandemic. Why not? So we'll we'll just have to adjust to this now. And, um, you know, we never expected to run a to-go restaurant, a takeout restaurant. That's not what I've been, you know, working towards since I was 15 and started cooking professionally. But if that's what we have to do right now to survive, then that's what we have to do. So our focus has turned really quickly to how do we make the food that kind of fits our style and we feel proud of but can also – transport well and make for good to go food. So that's, that's where our focus is now. Jared, how difficult has it been to maintain a, the staff? Have you had, have you been able to keep your entire staff employed? Are you uh, doing enough takeout business? Are people uh, uh, supporting the restaurant right now? What's the difference between the revenue you might've anticipated if you were open for table service as opposed to takeout service? say for sure is that, um, you know, a big thank you to the community because we have had incredible support. We've had, you know, a mix of our old regulars, our new regulars from the first couple of weeks, the neighborhood, the greater food community at large. It's been pretty humbling, to be honest, how much love and support we've received since we started doing this to-go operation. We have been selling a lot of to-go food by our standards. We're not built for volume. My kitchen staff is me, my chef de cuisine, and my sous chef. That's it, three of us. Um, so, you know, we have to basically sell two or three times as much food as we normally would to have a busy night now since we don't have the full dining room. We don't have, you know, guests sitting there having multiple cocktails, having a full menu, adding desserts, adding a nightcap. So, you know, it's it's hard in a lot of ways, a lot maybe in some ways harder than running the restaurant normally. Um, but we're doing it. We've kept our full staff employed. But again, I have, you know, three managers, my GM and bar manager, my two cooks. Um, and then we have four full-time servers and a couple people who part-time. Um, and right now we've been able to keep everybody on board. Everyone's getting paid their full salary. The servers are kind of rotating through shifts, helping 
uh, one a night helping with the orders and all that kind of stuff. And they're all working off the tip pool and making the same money they were before. And my managers are getting paid their full salaries. We've been doing things like uh, we got these two bottles of Division uh, Nightshade Nebbiolo that's a little out of our price range normally, but it's a great wine. So we marked it up like we normally would and added $100 to it on top of that. And we sold each bottle for 250 bucks and said that $150 of each one would go to the staff. And we sold both of them in one day. And so, you know, we're doing things like that to get creative and give a boost of, you know, money on everyone's paycheck. So they're making their normal salaries plus some, and we're keeping them, you know, busy and active. Everybody's not working all the time. We're trying to limit how many people are in here, but, you know, everyone's kind of stir crazy. So we've even had our servers come in and rotate through prep shifts to help me and my two cooks with portioning things. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're really proud of that. Honestly, we haven't needed any help aside from the supporting community. Jared, Jared, how hard has it been to maintain uh, uh, physical distancing for your uh, prep cooks and your chef and you and your chefs in the kitchen? That's the hardest part for sure because we have a small space and a small line, and there's you know only so much that you can really do. So what we've you know what we've done is kind of like always we you know are rigorous about our standards for cleanliness. Like we've always sanitized our pens and guest presenters in between uses after they go to the table. Like this is stuff that we've always done. Restaurants, at least pedigreed ones, have always been extremely clean, safe places to be. So we're we're continuing the standards or maybe upping the vigilance a little more, you know, sanitizing bathrooms a little more often per night, even though we don't have guests coming in, doorknobs, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're just trying to, be smart and responsible around each other, be as safe as we can be. Everybody's in communication with how they're feeling, if they're having symptoms, you know, people are, um, but at, at most we have three or four of us in the restaurant at one time. So there's plenty of space for us and we're pacing out our pickup orders too. So. All right. Let me, look, guy, let me turn to you um, because you've been uh, documenting stories of uh, very much like Jarrett's. In fact, you've written about Jarrett too. Um, uh, just the other day, you published a piece with the headline, Metro Area Restaurants Adjust to a New Normal. Jared paints a fairly optimistic picture of how things are going at his place. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you, I love the How would you compare? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, com- Jared, compared to some of the other folks, I mean, it, it's it's great. I'm glad he hasn't had to lay off any of his staff. And um, I mean, if you listen to him, he's finding some really creative ways to, you know, adapt and make it through this. I would say that um, we're, most we're in the minority for sure, though. I know that. So, right. They, Go ahead, Lagaya. Most restaurants, um, you know, their employees are on temporary unemployment. And um, they are rotating maybe some staff in, but they just simply can't. There's just not enough, you know, shifts to give them. So those who are working might be getting, say, 15 or 20 hours at at, at best. And so Jared, too, I mean, because his situation, he doesn't, let's say, I don't know, Jared, how many employees do you have total before this? Maybe 10, something like that? Yeah, not even. It's it's eight full-time, and then we have two part-time servers who pick up shifts. And even with those two part-time ones, we're still paying them, like, roughly what they would make picking up a shift every week or two anyway, just to be like, here you go, you know, you're still part of the family. Right. And so um, in other cases, and we're talking mainly with the independent restaurants I'm talking, um, you're seeing staff that maybe they're at like 30 to 50 percent staff at best. 
Um, and so that's just a, a vast number of people. And to put it in perspective as well, um, last Sunday, the, the A1 story was on uh, Ford Fry restaurants, the, the Rocket Farm restaurant group. And I mean, they have nearly 1,400 employees. So Jarrett is, I mean, I, of course, his restaurant is just as vital and important as, you know, Ford Fry's group and, and every other um, restaurant in Atlanta. But when you think about 1,400 people um, and, and, you know, they had to put the whole operation on pause, I believe they're actually um, opening up a few of them beginning, I want to say tomorrow for takeout and, and, and delivery. But uh, that's just I mean, those numbers are staggering. We really do have to, it's, and they're not numbers, they're real people, 1,400 employees. You remind people of the restaurants in his, I mean, he has some of the best known restaurants in oh, uh, sure, the metro yeah. Atlanta area. Right, right, right. So JCT Kitchen, that's in, um, uh, let's see, Westside Provisions. We're talking Superica. Yeah. Um, Marcel is Steakhouse also at Westside Provisions. Um, number 246 in Decatur. Um, let's see, what else does he have? Uh, King, King, King and Duke in Buckhead. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, the point is that he's got a lot of the best known. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. he's got some of the best known restaurants in, in, in Metro Atlanta, so we'll watch for that. Um Karen, we need to bring you into this picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was looking at figures, and you'll correct me if I've got this wrong, but the figures that I'm looking at in terms of Georgia restaurant and food services jobs as of last year, 2019, something like 488,000 people work in the restaurant and food services industry in Georgia, which is 11% of the employment in the state, it's a $22.9 billion uh, industry here. Um, just on the service of it, are those figures uh, pretty uh, close to accurate? Um, yeah, actually, they had increased going into uh, 2020. Half a million workers, 500,000 people, 19,000 locations. And we were, we were on track to do $25 billion this year in revenue. Obviously, uh, we're not going to hit those numbers. Um, I believe that, uh, that probably two-thirds of the restaurant workers in the state have been laid off. Um, we have numerous restaurants closed around the state. Well, all restaurants are closed in-house uh, to dining in right now and just delivering carryout. And delivering carryout translates for some folks, but in your upper-scale dining, it certainly doesn't translate Consumers aren't used to to uh, procuring food from the restaurants in that manner, and um, uh, and the um, the margins in restaurants. Our profit margin is four to six percent. So if you cut out um, all the in-house dining, you've just reduced. Uh, you, you've totally changed what your break-even point is, and there's no way you can make your break-even point on your fixed expenses when you have that much of a reduction in your in your revenue. So um, let's take this one step further, and, mm-hmm. and then uh, break it and break it down from there. So Karen, when uh, when we talk about the difficulties that restaurateurs are having and the fact that in some cases restaurants are laying off serving staff, kitchen staff, whatever, uh, that's only the beginning of a larger chain. This also has an impact, I think it's fair to say, on suppliers, uh, whether it be 
people who are supplying linens to the restaurants, whether it's farm-to-table operations, farmers who've been growing food for restaurants. I mean, this explodes in a pretty dramatic way, doesn't it, Karen? Yes, it does. Uh, I mean, people do not realize that we have electrical contractors that all they do is take care of restaurants. We have uh, specialized equipment in restaurants, our grease traps, our hood systems that are very, very specific to our industry, that there are contractors their, their, only, their only job is taking care of restaurants in, in that manner. And as you mentioned, the linen companies, as you mentioned, um, produce companies. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the um, independent restaurants and the upscale restaurants that are, utilize, that are promoting the, food, the, table, the farm-to-table movement and using um, local homegrown produce, which uh, is not getting to market now. And that, that's, a, that's actually another serious issue that's going on is the, uh, the amount of fresh produce and fresh milk and, and uh, uh, farm products that are not even making it to market because of how the food dollar has flipped. Here in Georgia, consumers have been spending more than 50 cents of every food dollar away from home since 2015. So, you know, we've been, the restaurant industry has been feeding people, not grocery stores. And we have two different, there's the main supplier, but then the supply chain changes and goes into grocery store consumer packaging, and then the rest would go into restaurant packaging. And now you don't have the demand for restaurants, so that has put additional pressure on on the grocery stores at this time. But I don't think the supply chain has reacted quickly enough to this. So we have plenty of food, but we've got to figure out how to get it to people now and because they're not getting it from restaurants. Yeah, guy, uh... Lagaya, you actually wrote about the farm-to-table movement and how it's been hurt in last Sunday's paper. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just been, um, it's really tricky. You know, one of the, the farmers that I spoke with, that, I mean, this is a critical time for them right now. When If, if your um, farm is particularly one that uh, targets your product to some of these restaurants and in fact you're growing certain things because a chef has asked you to and all of a sudden what do you where do you sell that um actually if you want if, if you want one happy story uh, it's all going to um far the uh, fresh market uh which is you know online um food ordering uh, that grocery is you know off the charts and and so some of these guys are just where do you where do you sell that product anymore. And so when I was speaking with one of the farmers, she was like, shoot, you know, I've got $8,000 a month that I have to pay on, you know, my mortgage for this farm. Um, I've already fronted, I've maxed out four credit cards, you know, in order to be able to, to pay for all of the supplies that she needs to do her planting right now. She was going to go ahead, you know, and plant and see what happens to it. But those specific, you know, specialized things, you know, like are people going to get, are, do people want my chicories is what she said. You know, if restaurants aren't buying them, will the public want to, to purchase that? So, um, and I think, too, one of the things that couldn't have come at a worse time for them, and Jarrett could probably speak to, to this as well, but restaurants are coming off of, you know, the, one of the, this is the slow season, and now it was supposed to ramp up. And and so uh, January and February are so difficult for restaurants. I mean, the margin, like Karen said, is super thin. So you get to March, you're hoping, all right, it's springtime. People are going to come out. They're going to eat. They're not 
all of a sudden open. And in the case of the farmers, this is planting. This is, you know, the, the, the spring planting time. And, um, and the question is, you know, what do I plant? Where am I going to sell this when I do harvest it? So um, it, it's really, um, it couldn't have come at a, at a worse time for them in terms of seasonally. Jared, talk a little bit about that, um, getting uh, the food you need from your uh, suppliers, uh, the, the farms that you typically work with, and talk about how it's affected the menu that you offer. I noticed you had posted on your website, and I frankly don't know at, at what point you posted this, but you, you say uh, to your, uh, to your uh, 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 people who love your cooking, you say, that we'll be offering a small menu of the delicious, playful seasonal food you've come to know and love. Um, but then you say, after this week, we'll evaluate the situation. We're all monitoring and decide when we can remove, we can return to normal. Until that happens, we'll continue selling to go so we can support the farmers we work with and keep you well-fed until we're in the clear. So uh, speak to it, all of that. Yeah, so, you know, for example, one of the bigger farms around here, Woodland Gardens, based um, outside of Athens, they're sort of like kind of the big workhorse farm that a lot of nicer restaurants will buy from because they have a, a fairly large uh, product line that they grow and they you know, have a pretty much year-round supply. They're very consistent and organized. So, you know, I probably buy 60 to 70% of my produce every week from them. And then we sort of spread the love around to some of the other farms too, and make sure that we're buying from everybody, but they're kind of the backbone of everything. And I think normally the farmer, uh, Celia Bars has like 30, 35 restaurant drops or so, you know, somewhere in that range when they come in to deliver every week. And uh, two or three weeks ago when we had sort of pivoted, I guess three weeks ago when we sort of pivoted to mostly to go food, we were her only restaurant run on on that week, um, but they've you know pivoted too, and she's selling lots of fresh harvest, you know meal kits like a Blue Apron or Garnish and Gather. So, you know farmers are having to get creative too. But for us, we we buy all of our fresh product from from farmers, so we're going to continue to do so, and that's part of why we want to stay open is not only to feed people and keep the restaurant open and keep our staff paid, but you know we also have a network of farms we buy from who are small business owners too. And we want to try to support them down to, you know, the guy we buy our flowers from for the dining room. Uh, Evan Neal is a, a local flower farmer. We buy dining room flowers from him every week. And he was like, I guess I'll, you know, take the next couple of weeks or months off. And we were like, no, nah, keep bringing them by. I'll buy them from you every week. No reason why you shouldn't keep making money if we can buy them from you. And we'll just, you know, bring them to our spouses or giving us some guests or whatever. So, yeah, we're trying to keep this All right. Well, you know, and I will mention this. There is a bright spot that I'm seeing um, where when you have some of the restaurants who have gotten really deeply involved in um, emergency meal supply efforts, they're able to now using charitable funds to feed these frontline healthcare workers and sometimes as well some of the displaced restaurant workers. But there's funding that is coming, say, from the Atlanta Hawks. It's enabling, and this is in the case, for example, of Miller Union um, and Forza Storico are two ones that have been, been able to use that funding from the Hawks to rehire their staff 
um, to cook and package the meals that are then going to um, Emory Healthcare Frontline Workers. But that's enabled the restaurants then, these farm-to-table restaurants, to purchase from some of these area farmers, and that's getting, you know, critical dollars back into um, the supply chain there. And it's not just, you know, Miller Union and Ford Historico, but I know that Linton and um, um, his Linton Hopkins and his wife with a restaurant, Eugene, they are doing it now. We're seeing um, just yesterday we announced that um, uh, Justin Anthony with the whole his uh, 10 degrees south and some of his South African concepts, that something like that is happening with them. They were able to rehire. I was just speaking with um, the owner of um, uh, Mission and Market, Ian Winslade, and funding from supporters, you know, these charitable funds, they're doing the same thing. So I'm seeing that some of the emergency relief efforts are actually enabling the supply chain to get at least within um, restaurants and them purchasing from the farmers. That's getting some money um, that way. So. All right, let's do this. Um, thank you for that. I want to get take a break, but but I think the next thing we want to talk about, and Karen, I'm going to call on you to start this part of the conversation. When we get back to the break, we really need to talk about the fact that many of the restaurants we're discussing here are, in fact, small businesses. And we're, there is great concern about how many are going to survive. And uh, it also raises the question of what's happening with the money that Congress uh, appropriated and the president signed into law that is supposed to be coming downstream uh, to small businesses, including restaurants around the country. We'll do all that and more after we take this break. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Lagaya Figueres, Karen Bremer, Jared Stieber join us today to talk about um, how the coronavirus is um, making an impact on the restaurant hospitality business and, uh, in a larger sense, the, the uh, way in which it is having a, a big impact on employment, unemployment figures, and on the economy in general. Uh, Karen, let me ask you that before we go anywhere else. We see these enormous figures now in the state of Georgia for uh, unemployed uh, Georgians. Uh, do we have any sense, have, has your organization tried in any way to quantify how many restaurant workers are now out of jobs, either temporarily or permanently, or is that uh, something that can't be done because they're not listed by occupation? Mm-hmm. Well, um, we, uh, we've we done uh, some statewide surveys, and our next survey, I think it gets sent out today, so hopefully we'll have data next week. But my survey back um, after the 22nd of March indicated that 78% of restaurant uh, operators had laid off employees at that point. Uh, 2% of operators had permanently closed the restaurants, and 12% anticipate permanently closing the restaurants in the next 30 days, and 41% had temporarily closed the restaurants out of 19,000 businesses that employ um, a half a million people. That's pretty significant. 
Well, and, and that leads me to uh, want to talk about where this, the industry is headed. Uh, the New York Times uh, published a piece uh, very recently uh, in, in which it uh, talked about the fact that independent restaurants around the country are going to have a very hard time surviving, Karen. Uh, and here's just a, one quote from that article. Restaurant analysts and operators have been quoting an estimate that 75% of the independent restaurants that have been closed to protect Americans from the coronavirus won't make it. The National Restaurant Association estimated this week that the entire industry could lose $225 billion in the coming three months and shed 5 to 7 million employees. Karen, those figures are staggering, as is everything else about what's happening to our society in the midst of this epidemic. Yes, and, and those, those numbers correlate with what um, we are estimating based, again, on, uh, on the information that we've received from operators around the state. Um, and we also have very serious concerns about these federal bailout packages right now. Um, you know, the PPP was touted as something that would help save our industry or save jobs. It's not. It is. It is. Uh, it has a, a horrible um, payback time frame. Basically, the government's asking you to put everybody back on your payroll. You don't have a job for them. You're not open. And then the time frame, you're going to have to lay them off again in eight weeks. That makes no sense whatsoever. The money is so tied up. Restaurants are people are not getting um, the loan money. Um, it is it is a such a convoluted system. I'm actually part of a coalition that's uh, nationwide that we are working on something called FAST, which is the Federal Automated Stimulus Package, and it would take away um, the banks processing this money, would turn it into a grant program rather than a loan program, um, because. You know, the big chains are going to be able to survive this. I mean, they can draw down a quarter billion dollars on a line of credit, but but Jarrett doesn't have those sort of assets. Many restaurants don't have those sort of assets. Um, you know, you, th- you think about your Subway restaurant in your neighborhood. Um, that is a franchise. That is an individually owned and operated restaurant that somebody has invested their life savings into. And these programs don't make any sense whatsoever for, for the majority of restaurants in our country. And so we are, we are really uh, working very hard to get this to get this program in front of the legislators and uh, in front of Congress and get something passed that can give us immediate relief to help uh, shore up these restaurants. I've reached out to the governor's office and gave an entire um, list of, of, uh, of things that would help our industry right now and basically was told, no, we can't do any of those because we don't have the money to do that. And the relief that we're getting from the federal government can't be used to do things like tax credits or tax breaks uh, for restaurants and small business. So, um, so the only option that, that we have right now to push for our industry is something like this FAST program, and, uh, and it can't happen soon enough. Um, I, I think Lagaya sort of spoke to this, but I talk to restaurateurs every day that are, that are um, they don't know what to do. They, they've never been in a situation like this before, and they've invested their life savings in a business, um, and um, it's, 
it's very distressing. But the only options that I can see is a program that would be a grant program back to the restaurants to give them some money to shore them up to weather the storm. Because we don't know whether this is, whether the, when this is going to end. We don't know when consumer confidence is going to come back to feel safe to go to a restaurant. Um, I think there's just too much unknown and too much hidden out there right now. So. Look, I, you know, it strikes me that um, even if people out there who are listening say, well, I don't go to restaurants very often. I prefer to eat at home. I'm, you know, I'm sorry they're struggling, but the whole, the whole country is struggling right now. But, but I'd like to frame it in a little bit larger context. Um, as Karen points out, we've got $23, 24000000000 billion in sales in Georgia restaurants, uh, and, and those, those sales are shut down uh, there's the carryouts like Jarrett's doing. That's all well and good. But in the long run, the tax revenue on this is not coming in, and it, it has a huge impact uh, on the uh, state budget, which is already having problems enough. So th- this is a larger problem than just whether you want the restaurant industry to survive or not. Well, I mean, yes, it, it, it's huge. When I talk to some of these guys on the phone, that whole unknown of, um, you know, not just am I going to do this tomorrow or how can I, can I make it next week? But the big question is, you know, some of these guys, it's like they're going to, they're paying rent. They're having to decide whether or not they're going to be able to, to, um, you know, renew licenses, that kind of thing. And, and if they, even if they're able to reopen again, when will people actually feel good enough about coming? Um, that is one of the biggest question marks um, for these operators going forward. So, of course, every day they're making a million decisions. But that looming question of what is this, what are we going to look like when, when, um, when we can reopen? Uh, not to sound selfish, but we have a dining guide that we do in the spring. Obviously, that's you know, canceled. And I was talking, um, you know, with some editors at the paper. I'm like, look, if we want to be realistic, I don't know that we can even do one in the fall. What is this landscape going to look like when, when, um, when, when we get back from this? I think that um, nobody knows, excuse me, nobody knows that answer. Jared, I'm interested in that too. You as a small business owner are facing the same challenge, uh, speaking to what Lagaya was talking about, in terms of looking down the road uh, that uh, the President of the United States has been talking about lately. Oh, we really need to start thinking about opening the country back up for business again. Uh, we've got to get beyond uh, this, this shelter in place that's going on in states across the country. But of course, the president can't open the country on his own. Individual businesses are going to decide when they think it's safe to get back to business as normal. How do you look ahead and what kind of standards do you, are you beginning to think you might want to employ to figure out when you can open your doors again? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, the somebody asked, I think Eater or something, emailed me and asked a question yesterday and was like, you know, the governor's orders are extended. Do you have a comment on that or a reaction? And it was just kind of like, uh, yeah, obviously. Like, I don't know. We all knew it wasn't going to be, you know, by Easter we'll be open. So I'm just anticipating that we're going to be to go restaurant for a long time and we'll just keep doing it. 
Um, that's why we've been changing the cuisine genre every week and going to a different country. It's like at least you can come get a different menu from us every week, totally different thing. My cooks and I won't get super bored, but we're trying to sort of monitor things, engage it. But I'm, you know, preparing and thinking for the future. I think that, you know, we're probably going to see our biggest dip in business once we go back to normal would be my, my anticipation because right now we're selling to-go food. We're getting donations from people. Uh, you know, we're taking donations or gift card purchases through our Venmo account, Little Bear ATL. If anyone wants to send us money, we'll take it. So, you know, things, <laughs> things have been good in that sense. So we're, you know, able to keep running the business. Um, you know, we designed the restaurant not to be pandemic proof, like I said before, but we want it to be more efficient and more streamlined because I feel like the traditional restaurant model is pretty broken, but people continue doing it anyway. They're just like, yeah, four to six percent profitability. Great. We're a restaurant. And it's like, well, surely there's a way to do it differently. Right. So that was the idea behind Little Bear is like we don't need a ton of money coming in in our gross revenue to have a better bottom line percentage than the standard restaurant model. And we're able to get through this time. But when we go back to normal, are people going to come out and just immediately start filling the restaurant up? Or are we going to do as many covers then inside the restaurant as we're doing in to-go sales right now? I don't know. Karen, what is the Restaurant Association starting to look at in terms of when, what are the signs, what, what, are, what, what is going to be needed to decide whether restaurants can start opening their doors again down the road? Um, as someone who's celebrating their 46th year in this industry, um, I truly believe that, that the consumer confidence has to be there. Mm-hmm. And from kind of a, 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 a global perspective, I think that means that people will need to feel safe. So, and I think the only way people can feel safe is to have widespread testing so we understand how this really how this is spread and really who is immune to it and and those sorts of of factors Um, because although the coronavirus is not a foodborne illness many people think it is and that's why there is somewhat of a fear of of restaurants to a degree Um, but it is not and and as as Jarrett was saying we are the original wash your hands sanitize you know uh, uh food standards we we operate kitchens that are operate under fda standards like it's just like a food production facility or or a hospital or something like that so i I truly think it's going to be that consumer confidence that that has to come back people have to know that it's safe to go out and um so at, at this point we're trying to help people mitigate their risk. We're g- trying to give them suggestions on what they can do to retain as much capital as, pro- as, as possible, uh, hence why we petitioned the government to allow for carry-out beer and wine sales so people could deplete their inventories and raise some cash um, because everybody's going to need money to get reopened once we get the all-clear sign. Karen, by the way, you just talked about your long career in uh, the food service business. And I should have, when I introduced you, pointed out to people who are longtime Atlantans, as I am, that uh, well before you became uh, the CEO of the restaurant, Georgia Restaurant Association, you were the owner of two of the most popular restaurants in downtown Atlanta, Daly's and City Grill. Uh, and then, of course, you were uh, at, with peasant restaurant groups for a long time. Those of us who've been around forever mm-hmm. uh, know your your career in the restaurant business very, very well. I personally still miss fried ice cream. <laughs> at, uh, so, so 
so do many people, and, and I miss I, I miss my restaurants every day. I miss my customers. I miss my my team, and um, so thank you for saying so. Sure. Lagaya, uh, I got an email from uh, a listener to the show who said you ought to point out that there are franchise operators, restaurants in malls that have been closed completely. And so those uh, restaurants, there's no takeout. There's no money coming into them. Uh, so that that's a pretty big part of the restaurant business as well. And they're completely shut down. Sure. I mean, yeah, we haven't really talked too much about the chains. Um, yeah, you're, the, the reader's absolutely correct. And, you know, think about folks like um, Waffle House, right? That's something we see on every corner. Um, now they're, they're, I think they've sold out. They're, they're selling their batter, their mix, and <laughs> that's sold out. But um, it's, I don't even remember how many units, Sharon, or, um, Karen would probably know, how many units of Waffle House are there just in Atlanta alone. And um, uh, all of those are, are, are impacted. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so the focus of um, uh, a lot of my work here is, since the uh, coronavirus hit has been on some of the um, independent restaurants as opposed to, you know, the huge um, uh, landscape in terms of um, all of all of the restaurants. Um, but, um, yes, no, the, the independents and the chains alike have been uh, really um, impacted for sure. All right, let's do this. You know, Why don't we get our final break of the show? Go ahead, finish. Oh no, I was just going to mention, jumping off of what Karen said when she said that you know she 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 misses her customers from the time when she you know ran her restaurant. That's something we we haven't really brought up here, but um, it's sort of at the core of a lot of the interviews um, that I've been having with. Uh, restaurant operators around greater Atlanta, no matter where I go, you know, one of the things that they feel so, so sad about is this is the hospitality industry. And what they do so well is take care of people. And while they're doing that right now in the best way that they can, which is preparing food, you know, they, they, they I see some of them and it's like, they want to, they'll, they'll stand at the door and they're greeting customers. Of course, it's all from a safe distance, but the fact that they can't really be, um, Interacting in the same way with people who are longtime, you know, patrons is is just so hard for them. So um, we didn't, we really haven't talked about you know that the humanity side of of restaurants and hospitality, and um, and and so that's been really tricky for them. I know I was talking with Andre Gomez the other day. He's at Porchlight Latin Kitchen, and he and in Smyrna, and he's sitting there, you know, waving hello to customers. I talked with um, the owner of DBA Barbecue. Um, and he said, you know, he just stands out on the curb, too, when people are doing, you know, their curbside pickup because he wants to see them. And it's sort of um, inspiring them to keep on going is is at least seeing their customers. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit more about that, the social aspect of the restaurant business and what we're losing uh, because it's uh, we don't have it in the way we typically do. Um, And we'll do that and more when we come back from our final break on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. 
Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're back. Uh, before we continue our conversation about the restaurant industry, just a quick update uh, from yesterday's show. You know, towards the very end of our Thursday political rewind, we talked about uh, the uh, question of whether Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was going to uh, give in to pressure uh, from his Republican friends in the uh, Republican congressional delegation, uh, from other Republicans who felt that he really had to move the primary again from May 19th. He had been resisting that for a long time. Uh, Well, uh, we went off the air at 9.59. At 10 a.m., a news release came out from the Secretary of State's office that you probably are all well aware of by now. The primary, uh, Raffensperger has decided, cannot be held on May 19th. Instead, it will be held on June 9th. Um, and Raffensperger, of course, is saying that he hopes by then they'll be able to attract the number of poll workers they need. Remember that most of the poll workers, or many of them, are over 70 years old. They did not want to turn out for a May 19th primary. And after watching the fiasco in Wisconsin's primary just a few days ago, I think it was clear uh, to Raffensperger and to many others here that it was simply not reasonable to expect people to turn out to the polls as soon as May 19th. So now set for June 9th, we'll have plenty of time to talk about what that means, how it affects how people are running their campaigns, uh, how early voting will figure in, absentee balloting will figure in, and we're going to do that uh, starting next week on Political Rewind when... Uh, Although we will continue to spend a great deal of time telling you and sharing with you the big stories about what's happening with coronavirus, um, we also want to make sure that we are keeping on top of the political news in Georgia today. So um, just wanted to give you that quick quick update on the uh, change in the Georgia primary. Um, Karen, let me come back. Well, you know what, Karen? Yeah, let me let's talk about what Legaya started to talk about. And that's Uh, Aside from all the figures, the data about uh, the impact of the uh, industry economically, uh, you as a longtime uh, uh, restaurateur understand better than anyone what's lost when people can't gather to share food uh, in a restaurant. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, I mean, it's it's, uh, for so many of our neighborhoods and, and so much of Atlanta, the character of, of our neighborhoods is defined by the restaurants. Um, I think in this day and age of people working, well, we even more of us work remotely now, but uh, but even prior to this pandemic and, and, and the shelter in place, restaurants are one of the places in your life that you look forward to going to. You dread going to your CPA or your dentist, but you look forward to going to a restaurant because you're, <laughs> you're going to break bread with people. You're going to interact with people. It's, it's a place where you still have relationships, uh, not just with the people you're dining with, but the people that are taking care of you. And and I will tell you, to a T, every restaurateur that I have spoken with, their first and foremost concern has been their team, their employees, because their employees are part of their family, and then their guests. Those are, it, it's, it's, it's still a very human element and a touch element in our society. In fact, it's probably one of the last. And um, and I think that's what what is what is hurting people so much, uh, too, from an emotional standpoint. Um, and um, 
you know, it can't come back soon enough for all of us to to be back in touch with our humanity and our communities. You know, look, look, Gaia, Karen points out how uh, people in the industry are trying to take care of each other. As Jarrett described, he is doing it at Little Bear. Um, we probably should not end the show without mentioning uh, the way in which the, uh, the individual efforts that go on to help people in the business. So Giving Kitchen is probably the outstanding example. For years, Giving Kitchen has uh, operated to help restaurant workers when they have illnesses that they can't afford to pay for, uh, has taken care of them in other emergencies, and now Giving Kitchen is stepping up in an even bigger way, right, Lagaya? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, those guys have become a huge uh, resource for not just Atlanta, not just Georgia, but even um, across the, the country. They, they, they're um, a model for um, how does an industry take care of itself. So definitely. And, you know, so, so Giving Kitchen is the nonprofit arm, uh, but Staple House is the profitable arm, and that's one of the restaurants mm-hmm. here in Atlanta um, where all of those monies, you know, go to support Giving Kitchen and its um, mission. But, you know, Staple House right now has turned into a soup kitchen for the industry. Um, and folks can, you know, if, the, if you're a displaced um, uh, restaurant worker and, you're, you know, you need, you need a meal, um, Staple House is one of the places that we, where you can get that. There's a numerous um, uh, efforts going happening right now. Um, where any industry worker who needs food or, um, in addition, you know, not just a meal, but let's say, you know, grocery items and that kind of thing, um, where those resources um, are available to them. In fact, I will say that on the AJC, every week we're doing now something on Mondays. Um, there's a, we call it extra helping, and we're trying to get out the word for um, certain, you know, do-good type initiatives going on, and whether these are for, um, you know, geared toward restaurant workers or perhaps from the frontline healthcare workers, that kind of thing. Um, so folks can find that every every Monday when we post that online. But yeah, there's numerous, and the, and the, those are they're, they're heartwarming. I'll tell you, um, one of the most touching was there's something. It's a Facebook page um, called GK Restaurant Workers, and 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 I went on there about a week or two, no, maybe two, three weeks ago. And there was a worker who um, had lost her job and she said, Hey, I'm, you know, it's like a forum. Hey, I'm, I have no food in my house. And I will tell you within hours, there were more than 103 comments on there. Uh, like, where do you live? Um, I can get you this, or I'm coming back. And it turns out that one of the people who helped her out was a woman here up in um, Sandy Springs area. She brought her bags, and this gal lived, I think, somewhere down in the Decatur area. Imagine, if they didn't even know each other. That's the kind of industry that this is. They really do um, take care of one another. Jared, you know, you're a great example of that, uh, it, of, of both sides of that, both the way you talk about the workers you have employed right now, even though you can't open dining service uh, the way you would originally plan to, but also the social side of it. As a pop-up restaurateur for so long, you really relied on building a community around you of people who uh, became followers of yours, and, and there was this special treat coming together at the restaurant where you were uh, cooking uh, at a, on a given night of the week, for instance. Eat Me, Speak Me was the operation. And you, you really get all sides of what that's about, don't you? 
Yeah, I mean, it also influenced why we opened a smaller restaurant, too, because I figured if we were going to rely on my personality and people liking me, we'd, we'd have to have a limited seating capacity. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, we, you know, we opened the restaurant with an open kitchen for a reason, so I think that kind of shows how we feel about the kind of communal aspects of the restaurant. And, um, you know, I don't know, this whole situation, like our kind of one of our core ethoses has always been uh, – you know, like the proverbial mother tells you growing up, if you want something done right, do it yourself. And that's how we've always felt about it. So, you know, even my chef de cuisine, Jacob Armando, has kind of taken to uh, doing stuff like that. So we have um, on Mondays, his day off, he cooks uh, dinners for restaurant industry people who aren't employed anymore and need dinner and takes pre-orders. And on Tuesday, he and two friends of his go and deliver them to people. And this is something he does on his day off with his own money that he's making from still working at our restaurant. And that kind of shows, like, you know, a little bit about the way we think about things. And, um, you know, I mean, it's kind of uh, – so that's, that's the approach we've been taking, just kind of take matters into our own hands as best we can. Let me jump in because we're basically just about out of time uh, for today. But to, to finish this off and with, like, a, about a minute, Karen – one of the things that's interesting is the ubiquitousness of the restaurant business in Georgia is pretty stunning to look at. I was looking at the uh, uh, the uh, page that I think it's the Georgia Restaurant Association page, which shows the number of restaurants and employees of restaurants in every congressional district in the state. And with the exception of Tom Graves' uh, district, uh, which has 924, there is not a congressional district in the state that doesn't have at least 1,000, if not 1,500 or more restaurants. And, uh, and, and so this is an industry that has an impact across the state of Georgia. And I just want to make that point when we uh, uh, say how important it is that we think about what's happening in that business. Right, Karen? Yes, yes. Uh, and um, again, as I said earlier, um, Georgians spend the majority of their food dollar away from home in restaurants. Again, it's, it's, it's the convenience. It's the All variety. Right, we are com- Thank you. I got to interrupt you because they're giving me the uh, exit music for the show. Uh, Lagaya, Jarrett, Karen, thanks for joining us. We're back on Monday. Have a relaxed, restful weekend, everybody. See you then.